The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Fisgianados with Evan Rutkowski. He's good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Tuesday, February 5th, and this is the Fisgianados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fistinatos Pod. This episode, we're going to look for the deep dive at the ESPN. First, the ESPN UFC card, January 19th. Next, the ESPN boxing card that happened this past weekend. But before we do that, let's go into the review section. Let's jump right in. On Saturday, January 26th, there were two fight cards. Let's look at the Fox card first. Keith Thurman beats Josecito Lopez by majority decision. Also on the card, Adam Kalnaski beats Gerald Washington by KO2. Tugstot Niambayar beats Claudio Marrero by close unanimous decision. The entire show draws an average of 1.98 million viewers, peaking at 2.76 million viewers. For clarification, you may have read a 2.48 million viewer number. That was the average just for the main event. It shouldn't be minimized, but it wasn't the average for the entire broadcast, which was from 8 to 10.35 p.m. There was heavy competition from the NBA on ABC, Bellator on Paramount Network, the NHL All-Star Game on NBC. The NBA sort of blows everything out of the water. It averages about 4.3 million viewers. It gets a great overall rating, especially in the demos that matter. Bellator does pretty well, too. It averages just under 700,000 for the entire show. It peaks at 1.2 million for the main event of Ryan Bader versus Fedor Emelianenko, who still draws a crowd, even though that fight lasted like a minute. Uh, That also aired live on DAZN, so we don't even have that part of the number. Significant, uh, you know, that we don't have that part of the number. Although I'm not sure it was that big. I mean, 1.2 million for the peak on Paramount Network is a pretty big number. We don't know anything for DAZN. The NHL All-Star Game hit a three-year low rating on NBC, but it was on NBC SN before that. Uh, it only has been on NBC of late, of like the past three years. I think before that it was on NBC Sports Network, like really since 2004, I think. It averaged... 1.78 million viewers. It usually hits about 2 million. What does all this mean? I don't want to regurgitate everything. If you heard me on the Chris Mannix, uh, his boxing podcast, I don't want to regurgitate that. I'll go over some of the major points, though. On the whole, there's some real signs of life here. I think December 22nd was just a really horrible date to start off, like right around the holidays. That was, you know, reflected in the ratings a little bit. Like, not that that rating was horrible, uh, you know, but there was the NFL game, a lot of the other, 
a lot of the other plays were just showing reruns. It's sort of like a, in the holiday period, it's sort of a family time. Um, but this this was a better night. Like this this was a definitely we're in that period of January where it's a better night. I didn't list CBS as part of the competition. That actually drew over 4.8 million viewers, but it was all programming geared essentially at old people. Uh, most advertisers only care about the 18 to 49 demo. Most of the people watching CBS were over 50, and that's not nearly as important. The fact that PBC beats the NHL All-Star Game, though, is really impressive. I mean, this wasn't like prime PBC inventory. And, you know, not that the NHL All-Star Game is like the biggest event in the world, but that's a pretty big deal. Um, It was never going to beat the NBA on ABC. It's never going to beat CBS and overall viewers. You know, it's just, it's significant. We saw some actually good television. There were fairly long odds going into it, but it, but it was actually some good television. It was fun TV. Uh, ignore the Fox PR sort of marketing machine, because if you read their press releases, they're constantly talking about how it's doing 74% better than last year or something like that. Or, you know, last year when the PBC was doing a time by it, Boxing was doing abysmal ratings on Fox. These are actually sustainable numbers. They're not great, but they're sustainable. You know, I also mentioned this on Max, but I want to be clear about this. Cops, the show Cops, was a Fox stable on Saturday nights for a long time. I think up until 2013, it averaged more viewers than PBC has averaged so far. Like it, it almost always got over two million viewers. Definitely averaged over that. Now, look, five years ago, different time period. I totally know. I don't want to compare to that. But, and I'll probably do a deeper dive on this at some point. There's like this wins above replacement factor where you have to look at not just what's happening in the world of boxing. This show is getting more views than another boxing show. But what you you need to look at what Fox could be doing otherwise. Baseball does consistently closer above 3 million viewers on Fox during the summer, which isn't as as great of a time period as the winter usually. My overall point right now, and and this is still important, PBC is sustainable. That's good when you're starting out. That's really good when you're starting out. You hope to build, but this is a good, this is good. It's sustainable. But at the same time, no one over at Fox is getting promoted because of this acquisition right now. Like, it's just, this is fine. In terms of the actual fights, it was a really entertaining card, I thought, especially considering there were long odds going into it. There's a lot of strong takeaways on the whole. Let's start with the undercard. Niamara Marrero was a close fight, but a fun one. I don't really have any major issues with the decision. Let's see more of both these guys. You know, apparently there was some kind of momentum behind Niambayar being like one of the best prospects in the PVC or boxing in general. Let's pump the brakes on that. Um, you know, credit to him for taking a tough fight this early in his career. Let's see more, though. He's got a ways to go. Kaunaski's win was really fun. And it actually showed me something on a strategy level. I mean, even though he won by KO2, it, it seemed, if you watched it, like a clearly dominant win. I actually thought that Washington, if he used his jab and sort of stayed on the outside, used his reach, and had a re- you know really sort of boxed from the outside, he would have had a real pathway to beat Kanaski. But 
Um, that just wasn't the case. I mean, Kanaski got in there. He turned it into his fight. He sort of cut off the ring well. He earned the result. There's no doubt about it. Um, to those in his camp saying that, saying that stylistically he'd pose a big threat for Deontay Wilder, like, let's, let's hold your horses. Like, let's pump the brakes on that. Let's see him matched up against some other top 15 guys before we go crazy about this. You know, Washington was a great athlete, not necessarily a highly skilled boxer. As for the broadcast, Fox is kind of lucky that the fight did end in a second-round knockout. I mean, I'll just say this. I DVR. I watched this the same night. You know, I've gone over this a bunch before. I've got a two-year-old. Like, for certain nights of fights, I watch the fights live. Other nights, I'm, you know, doing the family thing, and I come in and just and zip through everything on DVR. I DVR this one. It went well past the 10 p.m. mark. Like, I put it like an hour over. It went past 10.30. I think it went 10.35, I think, was actually when officially it ended. Um, this is warning territory for East Coast affiliates. I mean, nothing to worry about right now based on the ratings, but just remember, Fox starts their local news at 10 p.m., not 11 p.m. The affiliates count on big lead-ins. That is, the like I said, it goes back to those those peak numbers. They are good for right now. They are good. So nothing to worry about there. If there was a turn and we started seeing really bad ratings, like we started to see with the UFC stuff, affiliates, I don't think they would be likely to do this, but they would be able to preempt boxing if there were bad ratings and it consistently went past that 10 p.m. start time. Um, So just something, you know, just to consider as as far as how this kind of scheduling goes. Um, On the main event, I thought Thurman looked like any fighter would after shaking off the rust for two years out. He clearly won. It was fun TV. You know, the, the draw on the scorecards was ridiculous. I mean, you know, so forget that. I mean, there was high drama in the seventh round. Lopez clearly buzzed him. I think if Lopez was a harder puncher, if he'd been able to cut off the ring better, he might have gotten a stoppage. But that didn't happen. And, you know, Thurman recovered. I'm a big Keith Thurman fan. I mean, I worked on some of his fights when I was at HBO. Because remember, he was at HBO for the start of his career. And I'm looking forward to seeing him in a bigger fight. And I hope he takes a bigger fight next. Also on Saturday, January 26th, DAZN puts on what ends up being a pretty TV-friendly card as well. Jaime Munguia wins by unanimous decision over Takeshi Inoue. Jushan beats Jesus Rojas in a good fight to win the WBA regular featherweight belt. My biggest complaint about this card and conceptually what DAZN was doing here is that they counter-programmed themselves because they were also streaming the Bellator card that night that was also weirdly on Paramount. I shouldn't say weirdly. The deal there is set up so that they uh, televise it on Paramount Network and stream it on DAZN for like half the cards, and then half the cards are uh, unique to DAZN in the way they've set up their deal. Um, And there's a couple ways to think about this. One is that it doesn't really matter because you are, if you're DAZN, you don't have a linear network. And as long as your subscribers are happy, then who cares if you're doing two sporting events at the same time? 
What I would say specifically in this instance is that there was a missed opportunity to have, especially on the boxing side, to have a rising star like Mungia. They could have put this on Friday night. They could have not competed with Fox, who was putting on the higher profile show. They would have not scheduled against themselves in terms of the overall combat sports space. Um, they likely would have gotten all the media attention on Friday night, all the articles with the results on Saturday morning, and then they would have sort of had Bellator and Fedor to compete with Fox and hopefully, if you're disowned, draw away some viewers from Fox. I think it's a much stronger position to take. Fedor clearly still draws fans who, you know, even might be casually interested in boxing. And this would just sort of let Mungia he can kind of own Friday night rather than be like the secondary or sort of tertiary story on Saturday night, which Mungia needs in his career right now. I mean, he's still a young kid coming up and that would have been good for him. Um, As far as the actual fights go, we learned a lot about Mungia. He looked weight drained. He wasn't able to win by pure physical domination, which he had done in the past. In a way, he was a really tough fighter who was in shape. You know, Mungia clearly won. He won a lot of rounds. Both fighters landed big shots to the body. It did not inspire confidence for Mungia. Like, if he was matched against a pure boxer, you know, I think he'd lose right now um, of of a really high talent level. But, uh, you know, more work for him to do in the gym. He also has that knockout factor. The Sean Rojas fight for me, early contender for fight of the year. It should definitely be in, like, the top 5 or 10 category. Um, <clears throat> it, I mean, that doesn't scream fight of the year. It's a, on a lower level. If that was an HBO boxing after dark or even like a Friday night fights, people would be going crazy though. That was a great fight. It wasn't the highest skill level. Really, really fun. Would love to see a rematch if they go in that decision, in that direction. Okay. On Saturday, February 2nd, ESPN and ESPN plus put on that card that will be the focus of the deep dive this episode, just so we have the results straight on the ESPN portion of the card, Richard Comey defeats Issa Chaniev for the vacant IBF lightweight title by KO2, and then Oscar Valdez shakes off some major rust, ends up winning by KO7 over Carmine Tomasson to keep his WBO featherweight title. The This is the undercard of the prelims action. It does an average of 880,000 viewers peaking just over a million, and then there's more viewers. If you count Deportes, I think it actually did a pretty good rating on Deportes. Um, Also, should be noted, not a great lead-in with the college basketball game that was like 1.3 million. I think it was the Gonzaga game, and then switched over to the Tennessee game. Um, The boxing was the number 15 cable show of the night uh, in a night dominated by early afternoon college hoops. They took most of the top slots. NBA on ABC was the top network show, getting just over 4 million viewers. But overall, bad news for the East Coast crowd. This was a strong number. You might be seeing more late shows like this. And then later, and I'll get this, I don't want to dive too deep into this, Bob Iger announces that ESPN Plus has hit 2 million subs. More on this later. On to the ESPN Plus portion of the card which started at midnight Eastern. Teofimo Lopez beats Diego Magdaleno by KO7, and then Sergey Crusher Kovalev extracting revenge on a lighter Alvarez with a unanimous decision in what started as a pretty like semi-close fight, I guess. 
not pretty close, semi-close. Um, it was really fun. It ended up with Kovalev just sort of running away with it, but still in entertaining fashion. I will go the, through the ramifications here real quick. Um, with regards to Teofimo Lopez, sky is the limit. Uh, mea culpa in the preview section last time I got my Magdaleno brothers mixed up. Uh, I was a little bit less excited about Diego than Jesse. It was still a big test. Teofimo passed it easily. Like I said, with flying colors, sky is the limit with this guy. I love the celebration stuff. I mean, this one was not classy, uh, this one specifically. But from what I've seen so far, I don't think Teofimo is a bad guy. If this does become a pattern, this event will always be mentioned as the first time or maybe the second time that we've seen some weird stuff coming out of Teofimo. But I love it so far. I love the kid's attitude. Like, keep it up. Let's see more. As far as Kovlev goes... Highly recommend a piece Adam Abronovitz wrote, uh, wrote about this for Saturday Night Boxing. Um, he is, Kovlev is a very complex, very smart guy. The, the people at HBO, it's like you'd walk away from anyone who spent time with him, and this is our social media people or some of the marketing people from time to time, like some of the programming, production people. You just, you got the, you He's very intelligent for a, you know, and, and I don't want to say for a boxer. I was about to say that a lot of boxers at the highest level are really, really intelligent. Um, he, he's very perceptive, very intelligent. There is a darker side to him, but he just was sort of like alert on a higher level than, than most. That was kind of the way that most people sort of, the takeaway that most people had in dealing with him at HBO. So I, you know, he's got this court case to win and assuming he does win it. And I don't claim to know the details right now to me, they seem like there was a, there's a good reason he has confidence in his case, but uh, let's see how that plays out in court. Obviously I'm not, you know, sort of here to, to look at facts of what happened in, in his court case. I care a lot more about, what he does in the ring and what he does business-wise for ESPN. This, Assuming he comes out of this okay, this division is huge for ESPN. It's going to deliver excellent content all year, and he's got some huge fights to make. So, all right, let's go into the deep dive this week. Let's look at what ESPN is doing in terms of how they are treating both the UFC and boxing, mostly through the lens of what the functional relationship is between ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. I don't want to spend too much time on the history of it here, but we'll quickly cover that. And then I want to look at what ESPN did on the January 19th fight, uh, where they showed the prelims to the first UFC fight on linear ESPN, then moved it over to ESPN Plus. And before that, they showed the, the sort of the early prelims on ESPN Plus. Similar experiment for top-ranked boxing, early prelims ESPN Plus, two fights at 10 p.m. Eastern on linear ESPN, then over to ESPN Plus for two more fights. There's a lot of what they did that was in common and then a lot of stuff that differed. So let's start with just a little background. If you want more background, I've actually done separate episodes, both on the ESPN Top Rank deal and then another one on the ESPN Plus UFC deal. 
And I think I had another one where I actually talked a lot, maybe it was a news and notes item where I talked a lot about ESPN getting the the rest of the UFC deal, um, you know, more on that soon. I think I'm going to try to get all that stuff on, on a website, but more on that later. Um, you could just do a Google search and find them, though. But here's the basics. So with the UFC, they were televised for the past seven years on Fox Four big events per year, and then a ton of cards on FS1. You know, they sort of moved over to ESPN in fairly dramatic fashion because the rights came up in conjunction with the WWE rights, and they were the only major sports rights available for a long period of time. I thought that Ari Emanuel and whatever other agents from WME worked on the deal for ES, you know, for the UFC, did a really smart thing by separating the rights into two different packages. One was a pure streaming package, which ESPN first bought for $150 million a year over five years. And then as WME continued to shop the linear TV package, that ended up also going to ESPN for $150 million a year for five years. Previous deal at Fox, seven years. It started at a pretty low yearly rate, ended up at about $120 million a year, but it averaged right around $100 million a year in aggregate. So... They got three times what they were previously getting. They got $300 million a year. They were previously getting $100 million a year. Um, <clears throat> sorry, recovering from a cough. Long-term listeners, you know that I had this in the fall. This one hopefully will just be barely an episode. Hopefully you can't even tell I have one. top rank boxing. Most of you know, I'll go over this quickly, they left the confines of pay cable TV moving over to ESPN in 2017, signing a four-year deal with ESPN, and as that model proved to be successful and as ESPN realized they wanted to use top-ranked boxing as an early pillar of ESPN+, Plus, they ripped up the four-year deal, they signed a seven-year deal where almost all industry insiders say it's a much stronger deal for top rank and that they're contractually obligated to give a lot of strong programming to ESPN Plus as Disney builds that OTT platform. Okay, that's stuff out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to broadcast an event on an OTT platform versus a linear TV platform, why that's important, and how that manifested itself in both broadcasts, which I think would just be easier to sort of dissect both broadcasts, and then let's look at what the buildup to each fight brought us, how they were promoted, what the goals are in doing this kind of thing, and how that affects you, the viewer. So with the UFC ESPN event on January 19th, here is what ESPN did. They put the early prelims on ESPN Plus at 6 p.m. Eastern. Then they put the prelims on ESPN at 8 p.m. Eastern. Then viewers had to switch back over to ESPN Plus for the main card at 10 p.m. Eastern. Prelim card actually started a little bit late, about 15 or 20 minutes late, but that was because it had an incredible lead-in. Duke played Virginia in college basketball. For all you international folks, that's like two of the top five teams in the country. That was the number one rated cable show of the night, that basketball game. I believe it was either the highest rated or most watched college basketball game of the year. It did go a little over. But that kind of audience is exactly the type of audience you want to try to convert to people to watch the UFC. That's exactly what you're going for. So no problem with that one. 
those are probably people who aren't necessarily already UFC fans who are likely strong candidates or at least in the age demo to shift over and, and enjoy watching the UFC. And that's what happened. I mean, other – I don't want to just put it on that though. The the buildup to this event, it was extremely significant. I mean, this might have been one of the most organized, disciplined corporate efforts I've seen in quite a while where you're trying to accomplish like one singular goal. And I mean, I'll compare the efforts for, you know, to, to boxing, but they're honestly, they're like kind of apples and oranges. If you watched them, I mean, like they're not as individual events. Like remember, this was the first UFC event going on to ESPN plus, And they had like seven months of showing boxing on ESPN Plus to learn a lot and then take those lessons and apply them to the UFC. You know, we'll definitely compare them, but still. Anyways, back to the corporate effort. If you looked at ESPN.com or on ESPN TV in the few days leading up to that January 19th fight, like this was a complete UFC takeover. I mean, for a while on that Friday, the top ESPN.com headline was that both main event fighters made weight. I think that is completely unprecedented for a non-pay-per-view fight. I mean, I literally think the last time a fight that wasn't on pay-per-view, either in boxing or MMA, where the headline story on a major news outlet was that both fighters made weight? I think that was before the age of the internet. I'm not even kidding. There, to be fair, there was an actual story behind TJ Dillashaw making weight. And not only was there a narrative behind it, there was literally a story behind it. You could read that one pretty high up on ESPN.com too in the newsfeed. But there was actually a narrative behind it. Like for context to boxing fans who don't really care about the UFC, it was newsworthy. This was a super fight where the champ at 135 pounds, TJ Dillashaw, cut 10 pounds to fight the champ at 125 pounds, Henry Cejudo, who had just sort of dethroned Demetrius Johnson, who had like one of the longest runs uh, in UFC history in title defenses at 125 pounds. So this was kind of like, and, and then he left UFC to go, you know, whatever, that's not really important. Um, it was a big time event. I mean, I think that that's the point. Like this may not have been a huge pay-per-view, but this was a pay-per-view worthy event that was going on to ESPN plus. I mean, the lower weight classes, like I said, not traditionally huge pay-per-view sellers, but Dillashaw was actually showing signs of breaking that mold. Like he's proving to be a legit draw in terms of attracting crowds, uh, attendance, you know, in the arena. He's really fun just stylistically to watch. Um, but if you like ESPN on both their .com and linear platforms, I mean, they were treating this as like the second coming basically in the buildup. And there's constant coverage, soup to nuts. I was personally targeted to like numerous times socially, you know, on social media with messaging for this event. I was given tune-in messaging, but I was also given sign-up messaging, even though I was already a member of ESPN+. I mean, if you watched anything on ESPN 
in the few days leading up to fight, like you saw this all over the ticker, you saw plenty of people talking about it. As the prelims ended on linear ESPN, you even had talent like Stephen A. Smith interviewing Dana White in the spot where typically Joe Rogan would be doing it as sort of the FS1 prelim show was ending and the pay-per-view would be starting. I mean, that's kind of how they treated it. And Stephen A. Smith, he may not know a lot about MMA, but he is a very welcoming sign to casual audiences. And I know, you know, boxing fans are a little bit more used to this. And he's much more knowledgeable about boxing than he is about MMA, for sure. I mean, he would... I'm sure tell you that, but just in terms of a of a of a welcoming figure, that was a theme basically that you saw that kind of stuff. From a pure corporate perspective, the top execs at ESPN were clearly focused on this event from all angles. The Sports Business Journal, uh, sorry, the Sports Business Journal had a great article written by John O'Rand with lots of details where we learned that Jimmy Pitaro, ESPN's president, sat ringside. He was there before the fight in the VIP area. Kevin Mayer, the president of Disney's, not ESPN, Disney's direct-to-consumer and international, was texting with Endeavor's Mark Shapiro, who's kind of like, run, you know, one of the fig- figures that, that runs Endeavor, which owns the UFC. You know, Bob Iger, Disney's CEO, personally communicated the results from Fight Night. Connor Shell, ESPN's EVP of content, was watching it from his home in New York City, to gauge the TV viewing experience, was in constant contact with the whole team, like all night long, and sort of oversaw how the UFC storylines became part of SportsCenter and the digital outlets. At the end of the article, Shapiro gave a great quote saying, "We are real quote We are realistic that the marketing power that they put behind this first fight will not be sustained across the rest of the year. ESPN's marketing power." For just a middle of the year event will still be five times what we received for Fox. We are fishing where the fish are biting. This is where sports fans are. They are at ESPN. Fox draws them in, but they live and breathe on ESPN. Unquote. Okay. A lot to unpack there. I'm going to leave it for right now because let's keep going on this. If you went on to ESPN Plus during the buildup, or on the day of the event, or even right now, it's just, it is a complete takeover of ESPN Plus by the UFC. I mean, I don't even really have a whole lot of nuance to add there. It was like, they remodeled their house with a brand new theme, and it was, the theme was the UFC. That's the way ESPN Plus was, and kind of still is right now. I mean, it's the top stuff you see. You know, my understanding, as far as the production stuff, the UFC production team is still doing it, which is why you didn't see any real major differences in terms of like camera angles or stylistically, you know, the way the broadcast goes. To be honest, I have not investigated that with a major effort, so I can't, um, you know, really talk more about it. What I can tell you is that traditionally the UFC has been very protective of that. And I mean, there's even some hilarious stories from back. Like, there was a moment in time when HBO was considering getting the UFC, and there was, like, a specific event where all of these HBO, not all, but several HBO execs go to this live event, and they're sitting there talking about what they would change and what they would do differently, but then there's, like, all these UFC execs, 
either sitting right in front of him or right behind him and they can hear him the whole time. And it just turned into like this funny shit show, especially if you hear the story from both sides. It's kind of hilarious. When you really break it down, what is the actual difference between watching a UFC prelim card on FS1 versus watching one on ESPN? And it goes back to what I was saying. Like, the answer to that part is not really that much. Not actually much at all. For boxing fans who don't watch the UFC, usually what they do here is they show four fights in a two-hour stretch that are the prelims. But usually one or two of the fights is fairly high profile. And this concept is really smart from a business standpoint. It essentially allows them to double dip on the TV revenue for one event. Like they get a license, fee, a license fee from ESPN for a two-hour show, and they sort of use that as the free preview to then purchase a five-fight pay-per-view card where the UFC also gets paid from the cable companies. So you get the license fee and then the pay-per-view money. But this time, like instead of going to pay-per-view, you went to ESPN Plus to watch the main event. You know, ESPN did the broadcast a little bit different from Fox, but you pretty much had the same UFC graphics. By the way, redone by Troika, the same agency HBO used when we redid our on-air look, feel sort of thing. So they basically learned, went through a process at HBO, learned how to do it, and then gave like two years, whatever, a year or two later, did it for the UFC. Um, There were some added slick sort of on-air stuff that was nice. They used a two-man booth, and from time to time, uh, Trevor Whitman, who's a striking coach, uh, he would come on in between rounds or before the fight started, sort of like the boxing equivalent to Manny Stewart or Joe Goosen, uh, announcing a fight. He Whitman actually had some incredible insights that he added to the broadcast, and I'd love to see more of that. Uh, the one thing I'd say is he's actually, they had him in one part, he's giving commentary on the coaching instructions that the fighter received in the corner in between rounds, which I actually think is a really sort of slippery slope. I mean, I personally loved it, but, you know, this is, you're now in a business where Trevor Whitman can gain or lose clients, which are probably financially more important to him than whatever he's getting compensated for commenting for ESPN right now. So he's in this like weird position where the integrity of his comment commentary job, he might be forced to say negative things about coaches. Um, and then he <clears throat> eventually might be competing with those same coaches for fighters. Um, and I don't really know him or any MMA coaches that well, but from what I've heard second and third hand, he has a lot of integrity. So I'm confident that he would be able to navigate those positions if he was put in them, uh, but, and I don't really think anything he said would put him in that position from this time. I do know that I love the commentary and I want more of it and I would love it uh, if they figured that out. I think the main difference was actually not in what you saw on linear TV in terms of moving from Fox to ESPN. I think it was actually how you viewed the event on ESPN Plus. And I'd say other than just comparing first events, you know, which Fox kind of bungled the first event seven years ago. They had a huge audience for a heavyweight title fight that lasted like a minute of their first broadcast. And what they did for the hour before that is sort of build up the UFC. They didn't televise the main undercard, which went three full rounds, was totally action-packed, would have been a great display of what MMA really is for casual audiences. 
um, but they didn't televise that. That was on like some uh, like that might have been back when they were doing Facebook or something. Um, I actually remember it because I was at an HBO pay per view event in Las Vegas at the pre party, and we were watching that fight in the casino, and just thought it was kind of hilarious. Anyways. Uh, they did much better this time. Traditionally, for any non-pay-per-view card for the UFC, the card moves incredibly slow because they're doing one fight every 30 minutes. And sometimes a fight can end in a quick KO. Uh, you you know, you had a couple of them, actually, on uh, this fight card. But they don't move, when you're, when you're on traditional linear television, they don't move the fight card along at all. So boxing fans can probably relate to this a little bit now that they're used to uh, or now that they're getting used to fights being back on TV with commercials instead of pay cable. There's so many FS1 cards that would start at like 10 p.m. Eastern. And if there are five or six cards, five or six fights on the cards, like they would go well past 1 a.m. Like the main event is five, five minute rounds. And like it could just move so slowly if there's not some, if you know, if there's not some chaos, but this six-fight card was actually over in just under two and a half hours, and it was paced a lot more like a pay-per-view than a linear card. And remember, there are still commercials on ESPN+, Plus, but there weren't that many commercial breaks, and they can move along at whatever pace they want. So the results for ESPN were astounding. I mean, the prelims, which were headlined by Donald Cerrone, who's a pretty, for boxing fans who listen to the show, Donald Cerrone's a pretty established fighter. I mean, I think he has the most wins in UFC history. That was the second rated cable show of the night. It almost got 2 million viewers. ESPN Plus had a record day and a record two-day period. I think they put out a press release where they had 568,000 signups, which is incredible. Um, So the results were astounding from the UFC end, and you can sort of see why with that kind of corporate effort. But now let's go to boxing. And the first thing that I really want to make clear here is that in terms of corporate commitment, they aren't totally appropriate comparable events. Like, I don't want the takeaway from this to be like, oh, ESPN doesn't care about boxing and they tremendously care about MMA because I don't think that's the case. I think actually the bigger comparison here isn't a fight that already happened on ESPN+. Plus. It's probably going to be... ESPN's first pay-per-view event in April um, that's going to be more comparable in terms of what kind of marketing and programming commitment we'll see. But let's take a look at what happened. So there was still actually a pretty solid commitment from ESPN. I mean, they promoted the weigh-in better than they do for most fights. Like I saw it on SportsCenter. They covered it on the website. It was actually a lot of the material was available for free. Uh, usually it's behind the ESPN Plus paywall, you know, which is sort of crazy. Uh, that's a discussion for another day. It wasn't like a top headline, but it was covered pretty well. And I mean, it didn't have like Duke and Virginia, you know, traditional rivals, top five teams, you know, biggest college basketball rating of the year. But it was also Super Bowl weekend. Um, you know, so you don't have nearly as many options it's sort of everything is sort of revolving around the Super Bowl for that weekend. It just sort of dominates all the talk and, and the oxygen. Um, but the good news on the college game is it didn't really lose many of the viewers that it had. I mean, it kept a large chunk of the viewers. There was messaging, you know, all the way throughout about ESPN Plus on the bottom line. Like there was actually like a 
instructional video for how to do it, you know, and that kind of stuff really matters. I think like there's plenty of older boxing fans who actually do need that. And, you know, like I said, like, remember the biggest difference between this weekend and January 19th is this is Super Bowl weekend. January 19th is conference championship weekend. That's a really big event, but like everything for the Super Bowl is different. So I actually think, and even to take a step back, like I actually think it's pretty smart to put on a big fight Super Bowl weekend. I mean, the UFC used to do it with certain pay-per-views. Um, HBO actually, like if you go like maybe eight or 10 years back, used to put on some solid fights for it. I think it's really smart just because no one, like when you look at the ratings, besides the NBA, kind of no one is really doing anything that interesting. Um, so it's it's there for the taking. Um, let's go talk about, but but in terms of corporate commitment, not like, not a whole, there's not a lot of ESPN executives in Dallas for this event. Like there's, you know, you're not feeling that same kind of attention to detail that you feel, you know, from the UFC event. And like I said, I think that's okay. I mean, I think basically, well, let, let's keep going. Let's talk for a minute about what actually happened on the broadcast and just sort of why I don't like this experiment quite as much for boxing as I do for MMA. So first of all, the pacing of the event is off here. And I think the the problem that ESPN is facing here is that this is an issue with what boxing fans are like actually accustomed to. And what I mean by that is when Top Rank moved over to ESPN, you know, a linear channel that most boxing fans had and didn't have to pay extra for, like by doing that, you're adjusting consumers to watching ads. And they're essentially telling consumers, hey, we're going to give you a very similar product to what you were getting on HBO from us, and now you don't have to pay 15 bucks a month for it, which is great if you're a consumer. The ESPN Plus experience is still much cheaper than HBO, but the advantages of streaming and boxing are not really advantages when it comes to this. Like, boxing fans haven't had to deal with ads for 30 years, and, and... because it was on pay cable and HBO and Showtime, they've moved the fights along at whatever pace they wanted to for like quite a while now. I mean, I think the complaint was actually that HBO, like the, you know, HBO especially was like starting fights like way past 10 sometimes. And it's, and that's not great for East coast fans in general, you know, but boxing fans, you know, they haven't dealt with ads in a long time. And, MMA fans, like, they've only had that experience on pay-per-view. So MMA fans are actually much more likely to welcome paying that extra money just to get the faster-paced event. Like, they're kind of like, when you start an event at 10 and you're not even done with it by 1, and, like, half the time, you know, that you're watching, like, if a couple fights end early, you could just be watching a lot of stuff that's not fights and it's not moving that quickly. They're much more likely to pay extra to get that faster paced event. And so back to boxing, you go two fights on linear, then two fights on OTT. And it just took far too long to happen. I mean, especially when you start so late, you have to be conscious. Like I said, of viewers times, especially on the East coast. I mean, if the first two fights end early, which they did, 
you need to move the broadcast along because once you move over to ESPN Plus, the timing no longer matters. As long as you still have some ads on Plus, you just need to keep the train moving. I mean, this show ended almost at 2 a.m. on the East Coast, which isn't something that's going to help sell the TV viewing audience on East Coast or Central Time. I mean, is real. I don't. I haven't looked this statistic up in a while, but I do remember it was a couple of years ago. Eighty-three percent of the TV viewing audience lives either on the East Coast, either Eastern Time Zone or Central Time Zone. You know. Now I'll say all that, and trust me, like it doesn't seem like it matters that much because the actual prelims got a really strong rating. And then he had to assume there's like this direct correlation. And I'm not sitting here suggesting saying that this one single event was responsible for a ton of subs. I think it was probably responsible for some. I think top rank boxing on the whole, if you look at all the messaging coming from ESPN, it is clearly responsible uh, for a lot. I mean, there's... There's basically, if you look at it, it's four things, really. It's the UFC, which is clearly the top. There's the one-time event where ESPN insiders were switched to plus, which was somewhere between 300 and 350,000 subs shifting over. There's top-ranked boxing, and then there's Serie A soccer. Like, but you've got to think, I mean, top-ranked boxing probably is the second most important out of all those to ESPN+. Plus. And basically the reason they waited till Tuesday to make the announcement on the 2 million sub mark is because they had to wait seven days and make sure that the churn rate, they probably went above 2 million subs and then had to make sure the churn rate, the people actually kept it after the free trial. And they were smart about it. They put on an ESPN plus uh, UFC card is you know earlier in the day, and then had the boxing top rank on ESPN Plus at night. Like so, they, they they were played the scheduling game really well, and then they made that announcement for for the two million uh, viewers. I mean, that's just that's that's really smart. It's really impressive stuff. Anyways, while the pacing of the event uh, was off, and I didn't like that part, I thought the announcing, especially for the main event, was really strong. Andre Ward is a very talented announcer. The only holes in his game have been related to when he's announcing potential future opponents. And in the main event, he was incredible announcing the Kovalev fight. In fact, I actually thought Joe Tessitore, Tim Bradley, and Ward were an excellent combo and, and should be considered, you know, they should use that more often. Um, and it's not to say that Mark Kriegel wasn't good. I actually thought he was really strong when he was at that secondary booth and, and sort of going over storylines with Max Kellerman, one of the things I thought they did pretty, they dealt with pretty well was Kovalev's legal issues. Like we got a full five minute Kriegel piece on the issue and that was actually up on ESPN.com in the, in the day or two leading up to the fight. I watched it there before I watched it on, um, on the actual broadcast. And I like getting context for it. As a viewer, I want it coming at me in the form of context for how I'm watching the fight. You know, and I, I said this on Manix's pod too, so I don't want to linger on it, but every fighter deserves their day in court, especially since there's no collective bargain agreement in boxing. Um, what I will say, though, and I didn't mention this in the UFC portion of, the, uh, of, of what I'm talking about here, 
I thought the boxing broadcast dealt with it much better than the UFC. So for, for boxing fans, the UFC had Rachel Ostevich, who just left her husband after being a victim of domestic violence on the same card January 19th as Greg Hardy. And they did okay in terms of addressing it with Ostevich in terms of context when when her time to fight came up. But with Greg Hardy, like Greg Hardy, for those who didn't watch, got DQ'd for just sort of like a stupid foul that was just not something an experienced fighter would do, which he's clearly not an experienced fighter. And for international listeners, he is a former NFL defensive end who uh, had serious issues, you know, basically was accused of beating his girlfriend and, and sort of not welcome back in the NFL, even though he was an incredible player. And I don't, I don't think getting in trouble with the law is like a lifetime sentence for someone. I think Greg Hardy deserves a chance in MMA. I do think it was a tough situation to deal with because he got DQ'd for like an obvious rule violation, but you maybe just should have put him on a different card. I mean, they just, when he got DQ'd, the announcer just kind of said like, Hey, given his history, that's really bad for him. And that's, that's just, it's a really hard, they were put in a weird position to address the issue because I don't think anyone could have anticipated he was going to get DQ'd, but it just all created like a weird feeling about how they were dealing with domestic violence on something. Um, and I thought the boxing did it pretty well, actually. Uh, a couple other things, and this would be talking about this, not just whether it's an ESPN plus fight or not. The Texas commission and the issues surrounding the stoppages is kind of drove me crazy. I'm going to talk about this only in the context for how you watch it on TV but the Texas Commission made United TV a lot worse. And it wasn't just both bad stoppages. Like, let's be real here. The Comey fight probably should have been stopped in the first round, but that wasn't, like, a line in the sand for me. That wasn't, like, stop the presses and open investigation. I mean, it was bad, but then once Kellerman started talking about it, everyone else had to acknowledge it because it was bad. It, it definitely was bad. But I personally hate it when a TV broadcast becomes all about bad refing or bad decisions or bad commissions or cheating. It gets like it just goes back into viral Teddy Atlas territory where boxing comes off as this corrupt sport to the general public that's always screwing everybody over. And then once it happened again, like we're over on ESPN Plus, it happened again way worse with Tiafimo Lopez and Magdaleno. And because it was already mentioned once, now it just dominates the broadcast. And after like that fight, it had every right to dominate the broadcast because that was insane. But look, had this be had, had this fight happened in New York or even Las Vegas or California for that matter, I'm I don't know if the first fight would have been stopped in the first round. Um, but I think we may have seen the ref acknowledge it more and maybe deal with it, you know, better. Um, but we definitely wouldn't, you know. We definitely would have seen that Tiafimo Lopez fight handled better. We definitely would have seen that just get dealt with in a better way. And you as consumers would have gotten a better broadcast because the storylines coming out of this night of fight should have been more about Richard Comey's amazing backstory 
and then you know the big time chance that he's getting and Oscar Valdez's return and just the Tiafimo Express staying on track and Kovalev coming back in impressive fashion and a turbulent moment for his life and his career. Um, anyways, that was a little frustrating. Other overall takeaways. And this now is sort of looking at both of them together. Like, I want to emphasize that while top rank exec should have been just taking copious notes the entire time of what ESPN was doing for the UFC, like, not all that applies to this boxing event. Like I said, like, this was the same type of scheduling experiment that ESPN Plus was doing here, but again, I think it's, I think the first pay-per-view is really where a lot of that stuff applies. I don't think it's this. It should be noted in terms, you know, these are different beasts in terms of, of what combat sports fans are accustomed to from a behavioral standpoint. Boxing fans are more skeptical of streaming services or monthly uh, subscription services in general, but that's for good reason because Boxing fans have been paying monthly subscriptions and pay-per-view prices in order to watch top-level fights for decades. Like, they don't have, you know, a league or one organization that can give them immediate gratification for the top fights they want to see. Like I mentioned earlier about the pacing, like, boxing fans have enjoyed the luxury of pay cable pacing for decades now. So to sort of give them, like, a C-plus version of that, like, that isn't going to work. MMA fans, on the other hand, have had a very different viewing experience. They've never had to pay a monthly subscription to watch good fights. Like, they've always been able to see fights on Spike TV, Fox, or FS1, you know, as part of, like, a pretty low-level cable, uh, low cable package like, that's probably saved them close to 360 bucks a year on watching fights, basically. I mean, they've, they've it go, like I hit on it earlier, but, like, they've been conditioned to watch far less than half of their total their total viewing experience when they watch a three or four hour fight card less than half of it is actually watching fighting and that's something that's probably incredible to most boxing fans like that's probably just an incredible fact for MMA fans the first monthly subscription they probably ever had to purchase was fight pass and that's really only for hardcore international fight fans you know for MMA fans and it's on the UFC's OTT platform for 10 bucks a month. And it's actually pretty solid value. I mean, I've subscribed to it before. I don't currently subscribe to it. But how – and I don't know. It, as as ESPN Plus rolls out, I'm not sure it's, it's a must-have anymore for U.S. fans at least. But let's just be honest. Like paying five bucks a month for ESPN Plus if you're an MMA fan and it – sort of proves to consistently eliminate 30 to 60 minutes of your fight card and better pace it than what you've been getting from, from FS1, you know, or, or big Fox in the past, like that might be worth it. Like, especially if you watch all this stuff on the East coast and you get to bed in a reasonable hour. And again, I'm not trying to suggest you like UFC fans have been abused. I mean, they pay a lot more, you know, there's 12 pay-per-views basically per year for the UFC. Like that's not the case in boxing. Like, you know, you have to give ESPN sort of overall like an A for their performance on January 19th. Like they absolutely crushed it for the UFC. The boxing version is just not an A. And I've sort of defined it. It's almost like it, you know, there are hopeful signs. Let's put it this way. 
there are hopeful signs, but it's almost like you have to define the boxing version as almost just a failure is the wrong word, but just like a B minus version of what they were trying to do for MMA. And it just doesn't, for all those reasons I listed, it just doesn't automatically apply. Now, I think there's some hopeful signs. Like I think, I think you can make a version of this work. I think I'd love to see it start at eight or 9 PM instead of 10 on the East coast. I'd love to see the ESPN linear version of it. Like, let's say if the fights do end early, you just immediately go to sports center. Even if it's 25 minutes early, even if it's two quick knockouts or something like that, and you just have the whole second part of the fight start right away on ESPN plus. And I think if you deliver four fights like that, like people would tune in and they would really like it. Like, like really like it. Like they would really enjoy that. If it's a really strong night of, I mean, this December 2nd was a really strong night of fights. Like it was easily the best and deepest card we've had so far this year. Um, I mean, granted, there's not a whole lot that from top to bottom four cards deep has been close to this. Uh, the only one has been a pay-per-view card so far, but like the entire flow the entire broadcast as a whole, it's B minus territory, basically B B minus territory, you know, despite the good night of fights, like I think the, the stuff in the ring, um, made it fun. So despite all that, it's still, you know, there's a version of this that can clearly work though. It's just figuring out that pacing, you know, boxing, 12 rounds of boxing basically takes 47 minutes and even a main event of MMA is only 29 minutes and an undercard is 17 minutes. So there's just, it's, it's much harder in boxing. And if you don't get the quick knockouts, like the fights just take longer. Now the plus side goes back to what I was saying. If you're conditioned to watching boxing, when you watch an hour of boxing, if there's 12 rounds of fighting, like you spend a significant portion of that hour watching actual boxing. Whereas in the UFC, you could easily just be watching in that hour of television. You could watch two first round knockouts and five total minutes of fighting. But anyways, there's a version of this that can clearly work. And I know some boxing fans don't want to hear that, um, especially on the East coast, but ESPN has been massively successful so far signing people up to be ESPN plus and I think there's just a huge benefit to being a pillar, an early pillar of ESPN Plus. I think there is. And I think for bigger events, like, trust me, this this is a good way to get a great night of fights, I, I think, if they make those changes. So that's my overall takeaway. I hope, I, I think this will be, if you're a, an MMA fan, I think this is going to be great for you. For a, for a lot of the reasons I listed, and if you're a if you're a boxing fan, I I think they can hit it. I think they can. Now, they've they've had some practice, like they've had some time, and I think the ad experience for boxing has gotten better. But like I said, there you know, this is you can sort of you have to work with them and live with it for five bucks a month. Um, you know, for all those people who don't, who complain, I guess even I don't complain about the zone either. Cause it's 10 bucks a month. I mean, basically you get for, if, if you just dropped HBO, 
you basically get DAZN and ESPN Plus for the same price as HBO. That's kind of the way I look at it. Maybe that's not the best way of looking at it. Maybe, you know, maybe a lot of the people are keeping HBO because they like the other programming. And, and so that's maybe not the best way to look at it. But I, I mean, purely in terms of fights, like that's the way I look at it. And I think it works out fine. Anyways, let's move on to the preview section on Saturday, February 9th. We have Showtime's first foray into uh, what was going to be high level non-pay-per-view boxing where Javante Davis was supposed to fight Abner Morris. Uh, for Davis's WBA junior lightweight title. Davis was between a 9 and 14 to 1 favorite, so maybe it actually wasn't the most high-level stuff. You know, I actually probably thought Abner was going to get beat up too bad. You know, Ab- here's here's what I say about it. It, wasn't, it was at least an interesting matchup. And Mara's, I don't think he really had a pathway to victory that he could pull off on his own. And what I mean by that is, he, if he he could have won the fight, but it would have been much more dependent on Davis having an off night or being out of shape or executing a bad game plan more so than Maras executing a really good game plan. You know, quite frankly, I'd rather see Maras fight at 126 pounds. A lot of other great fights for him there, but if he really does have a detached retina, I'd rather just see Abner Morris live a healthy life. And especially if he's going to commentate for the PBC, then great. He should just keep doing that. So now Davis is fighting Hugo Ruiz. He's between a 35 and 51 favorite. I really like Gervonta Davis. I want to see him in tough fights this year, tougher fights than Hugo Ruiz. Um, you get a pass on this Gervonta, but let's let's see you come back in three months. Let's let's see you fight three times this year. That's what I would say. If you're gonna fight Hugo Ruiz as your first fight, fight three times this year. Um also in the undercard, Erickson Lubin fights Ishe Smith, Javier Fortuna fights Sharif Bogare. Lubin is about a 25 to 1 favorite over Smith, but I actually think those odds are way off. I think they might have actually started to come down. There are a lot of questions about Lubin right now and you know, not that there aren't also a lot of questions about Smith, but this is a crossroads fight in a lot of ways for both these guys, despite the odds. I mean, I think it's sort of silly to predict anything other than a Lubin victory, but this is really interesting TV. I mean, this is one of those times where I think like the 25 to one stuff just doesn't make sense. Fortuna is like a four or five to one favorite over Bogare, but to me, this is like, this is a great fight. I mean, both fighters can win, they're vulnerable. Most importantly, they probably need to win for fear of potentially limited future opportunities. Like those are usually recipes for fun fight, uh, for fun fights. So this was, I mean, to me, this is a good, really good undercard. Um, also on February 9th, DAZN is they have a streaming card from Indio, California, where Alberto Machado takes on Andrew Cancio for Machado's WBA regular junior lightweight title. Ray Vargas fighting. Franklin Manzanilla for Vargas's WBC junior featherweight title. Jojo Diaz also in the card versus Charles Huerta. This is a meh card coming from DAZN, but let's hope it falls into that January 26th category where it was a meh card as well and ended up being good TV. I like Alberto Machado. I mean, he started out as a 50-1 favorite against Cancio. He's down to like 13-1, to and I actually think Cancio can win this fight. But, you know, Machado's an interesting fighter. Let's all be honest here. 
we wanted to watch Javante Davis and Machado fight each other. So it's a little bit frustrating to see them fight on two completely different networks on the same nights. But I think for Machado, if he and Tevin Farmer win, or just like let's let's see him let's see him fight someone like that. Like let, let's start to see Alberto Machado fight some better guys. That's that's basically what I'd say for DeZone. Um Ray Vargas, that could be interesting. He's like a six or seven to one favorite. Could be good TV. I don't know. I mean, Manzanilla has four losses. Only one of them since 2014. He's KO'd a lot of people. So, you know, maybe that'll be fine. I, you know, probably not. I mean, Vargas will probably just win that in dominant fashion now that I say that. But maybe. Jojo Diaz is like a 50 to one favorite. That's in who cares territory for me. I'll probably just watch highlights of that one because Jojo Diaz probably is not going to knock his guy out early, especially when there are three cards on the weekend. So on Sunday, February 10th from Fresno, California, ESPN is putting on what should be the best fight card of the weekend. I think it, you know, they're sort of redeeming themselves for the East Coast viewers by putting this card on at 7 p.m. Eastern. Jose Ramirez versus Jose Zapata for Ramirez's WBO junior welterweight title. Ray Beltran versus Hiroki Okada also on the card. Opening odds, they're both like five or six to one favorites. Uh, Ramirez and Beltran. They both have a history of making fun TV fights. And, you know, I think like, yeah, they're favorites. Yeah, they'll probably win. These are not coin flip fights, but these should be really good TV. They should be very competitive. Both underdogs have definite pathway, multiple pathways to victory for both under uh, underdogs here. This is a very solid card from Top Rank and ESPN, and I'm also just interested in, interested in seeing what Sunday night shows do. I mean, this is the first weekend without NFL football. It's kind of a fun experiment. Um, going into the week after, on Friday, February 15th, from Minnesota, ESPN is televising Rob Brandt versus. Kasan Basingurov for Brandt's WBA regular middleweight title. Josh Greer fighting Giovanni Escaner. And then Michaela Meyer also on the card. I'm not nearly as impressed with this offering from ESPN and Top Rank as I am uh, with the one on Sunday. I mean, the main event might be interesting. I think Basingurov, he is undefeated, but it's like it just feels much more sort of like a showcase fight for Brandt on paper. I mean, it's in Minnesota where he's from. This is start of a long weekend. Greer versus Iskander is like, that's your sticking Friday night fights level. There's no odds out yet on this fight, which sort of speaks to the lack of interest in it. On February 16th, Saturday from LA on Fox, we have PBC card with Leo Santa Cruz versus relatively late replacement Rafael Rivera for Santa Cruz's WBA uh, featherweight title. The original opponent was Miguel Flores, but let's be honest, both opponents are terrible mismatches. Also on the card, Omar Figueroa versus John Molina at welterweight. While this main event is a joke, while Santa Cruz, he is in against a late replacement, the original fight was also really bad, um, which weirdly... Saves the P- the narrative for the PBC because they can say on air that Santa Cruz, if he wins in dominant fashion, it's because there's a late replacement, um, and that's why you're watching crappy TV. I say all that with the caveat. I love Omar Figueroa versus John Molina, 
believe it or not, Figueroa is actually still undefeated. And I'm not going to get into all his out-of-the-ring issues. This fight could be really fun. Slight warning, it has potential to be incredibly depressing because these guys could fall off a cliff at any moment. Uh, and it's really weird to say that about a fighter with an undefeated record in Omar Figueroa. But I think this could be Rock'em Sock'em Robots fun. Not the highest skill level, but definitely a lot of fun. It salvages Fox's worst offering so far. And given the holiday weekend and the other competition, I'm very curious to see how this fight card does. I mean, it's up against the NBA All-Star Game Skills Competition. It's All-Star Weekend. It's a holiday weekend. Like, this is filler. It's slightly depressing that Fox even asked PBC to put on a card here because I'm pretty sure the demo that Fox cares about getting with the PBC is all going to be watching the NBA this weekend. Um, but that's it for the next two weeks. A few quick things. There should be a companion article to my last deep dive coming out pretty soon, which actually took me forever to write. It was sort of like my first case of writer's block because I did that deep, dark dive into everything that could go wrong. And then it was actually kind of hard to write and turn into 1,200 words on paper after I did a deep dive on it, which kind of surprised me, but that's okay, I guess. Hopefully you guys like it. Um, I mentioned this on Twitter. I kind of mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to put up a website soon. I say me as if it's not going to be my wife and I uh, doing it together. But we uh, we will put up a website soon with all my episodes and, and hopefully links to my writing. Um... The deep dives I do are intended to be evergreen for the most part. Almost every one of them. Maybe there's one or two that's just sort of timely stuff or I did a Q&A once or twice. But a lot of them are definitely meant to be evergreen. And I just want to have a place where they're aggregated and much easier for you guys to listen to them. Especially I'm starting to get... I'm getting a lot more followers and a lot more listeners. So I want new listeners to be able to sort of access this stuff. Um, and I was a guest on Chris Mannix's podcast last week. I said that a couple times in the beginning. If you don't listen to his podcast, please give it a listen. We had a lot of fun, talked for like an hour. And then, um, another note, when I'm on other shows, I did Michael Wood show once or twice. I did Kurt Amoff's show like a year ago. I would appreciate feedback. I mean, any, any feedback is, is definitely appreciated. Um, I've seen some people do this already, which I appreciate greatly, but I never, when I do this on my own, I, I don't talk to anybody. I just sort of, you know, it's funny. Like I never liked Colin Cowherd or anything like that. I thought, you know, I never liked really what he was doing after Talking for an hour, like I don't, it's it's so hard to just talk by yourself for an hour. So I have a lot more respect uh, for people who do that. But, anyways, I've droned on for over an hour. Like I'm at like an hour ten minutes. And next episode, especially given the not super exciting fights coming up, minus I will say I'm excited about Top Ranks card this Sunday. I'm excited about Showtime's undercards this Saturday. Besides all that, I'm not sure there'll be a whole lot of great boxing to talk about next episode. Maybe I'll do a 45, 50 minute one. But I say that all the time and then I always end up going an hour. Anyways, enjoy the fights. Enjoy your long uh, Pre President's Day weekend. I think that's the one coming up. Bye, guys. Did you
get what you was looking for?